We are all being formed by something. The scripture is a library of writings, both divine and human, that tell a unified story leading us to Jesus. But are the words in this strange ancient book still relevant? Do they still mean anything to us today? To Jesus, the Bible is trustworthy. To Jesus, the Bible has authority. The scriptures were designed to be read for formation, to shape us into the image of Jesus. In this book, we find life. In this book, we find a new way to be human. Well, good morning, everyone. How we doing? Some of us. Let me just say this. I say this with humility. Um, I think I should get dad of the year this weekend because I'm watching both of my toddlers by myself. And I'm preaching this morning. I woke up at 6.30 in the morning, got them ready, all while Rachel is in Maui. Let those with ears hear. <laughs> to be fair, I was in Portland earlier in the week, and she watched them by herself. So that would be her response, which is true. Anyways, moving on. In the great book, The True Story of the Whole World by Michael Goeen and Craig Bartholomew, which is one of those recommended books that Tracy mentioned, uh, they start off their prologue, their, their introduction with this story that I'm going to share. And I want it to be our introduction, our prologue to this brand new series that we are starting this morning called What is the Bible? They write this, Alistair McIntyre offers the following imaginary and humorous encounter to show how particular events can be understood only in the context of a story. And so he imagines himself at a bus stop. And there's a man that comes up right next to him, stands right next to him at this bus, this bus stop and says this. The Latin name of the common wild duck is Hysteronicus. 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 <laughs> now, the meaning of that sentence is very clear. But why on earth is he saying it? This particular action can be understood only if it's placed in a broader framework of meaning. What do I mean? Three stories, for example, could give meaning to this very odd sentence. Three different stories. Here they are. Perhaps the young man has mistaken the guy next to him at the bus stop for the person that he saw yesterday in a library who asked him, hey, what's, what's the Latin name for a common wild duck? Could be one story, sheds meaning on the incident. Here, here would be another possibility. Maybe this man has just come from a session with his therapist 
who's helping him deal with his painful shyness, and, and the therapist has been urging him to talk to strangers. And so when the young man asked, what shall I say, the psychotherapist said, oh, just say anything at all. At a bus stop, what's the Latin name for the wild common duck? My therapist told me to ask anything. Or possibly, here's a third story, possibly the young man is a Soviet spy who has arranged to meet his contact at this bus stop, and the code that will reveal his identity is the statement about the Latin name of a duck. It's his way of revealing who he is. The point is this, they write, the meaning of the encounter at the bus stop depends on which story shapes it. In fact, three different stories will provide three different meanings of this encounter at the bus stop. Humans, you and I, we are storied creatures. Um, Actually, neurologists will tell us that hardwired into our brain, like neurological pathways, is we love and make meaning out of story. You and I are built for story. This is actually why we love movies and films and books and theater and drama. And it's not just when you're reading a book or watching a movie. Um, It's also in everyday occurrences. And here's what I mean. There are many of you in this room right now um, that I've had coffee with one-on-one. One of the things I do every week is I usually try to meet with someone brand new with coffee one-on-one, and one of the first questions I'll ask while we get coffee is this, hey, like, what's your story? Like, t- tell me about yourself. And what happens is, basically when I'm asking that person by tell me your story is like, hey, what's your past, what's your present, what's your future? Tell me where you came from. Like, where did you grow up? Do you have any siblings? Are are your parents still around? Are are, are you married, single, dating? Like, where did you come from? What's what's your background? What's your beginning? And then it it invariably moves to what are you doing now? Where do you work? Where do you go to school? Where do you live? And then it usually ends up in the future of what do you aspire to? What do you, what do you hope to do in the future? What are your dreams? What are your goals? See, in other words, all of us are a part of a plot of which we are characters in. Every single one of us in here has a past, a present, and a future. We have heroes in our lives. We have villains in our lives. We experience moments of deep tragedy, but then also moments of profound beauty. The search for love, for purpose, for glory, right? And this is why we like movies like The Gladiator or Shawshank Redemption. If you're into books, Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter, Hunger Games, May the odds be ever in your favor. That almost sounds like a laugh in the Hunger Games. I do have a confession to make. This will be my second confession this morning. 
I was with Aaron and Tracy in an Uber in Portland a couple of days ago, and books came up, and I told them, um, you know what? Here, here's a little secret about me. Don't, don't shame me. This is a safe place. You better not judge me. I have never read or watched Lord of the Rings or Harry Potter. All you, you guys are all judges who just did that. Jesus says, don't judge. Get the plank out of your own eye. Anyways, okay. All right, moving on. So this morning, here, here's what we're doing. We are starting this series, What is the Bible? Um, which, I, like I said, this is, this is just a prologue. This is just an introduction this morning for the next nine weeks. Um, as Tracy said, all of our life groups, um, which if you've done Alpha, if you've done Rooted, then we want you to go into a life group. They will be tracking along in the series um, as we form ourselves by Bible reading. But first... Here's the big idea that I need you to walk out this morning with. We have to grasp that the Bible is a story. You have to grasp that the Bible is a story. Now that may sound like a really easy thing to do, um, but I think there's more to it than just that. And what I mean when I say the Bible is a story, uh, certainly I mean it's a true story, so I don't I mean it's like fake or something like that, but I mean we have to understand it in a narrative. And the Bible is not just a story, the Bible is the story. The Bible is the story that makes sense of and sheds light into your individual story. The Bible is the best story ever told, and I would argue neurologically your brain is wired for it. Um, our, our first value here at the bridge um, is we are a church, we are a community that is rooted in Scripture, meaning this, we find our identity, we find our purpose in the story of God. Now, where do we get that from? That sounds cute, a little fairy tale ish Oh, we find our meaning and purpose in the story of God. Is that just wishful thinking? No. I would argue that the Bible itself models for us that we have to understand it as a story. The Bible invites us to look at it through the lens of this giant meta-narrative. So, to begin with, turn with me to Luke 24. If you don't have a Bible this morning, we have free orange ones underneath your chairs, as is always the case. Honestly, take it home. If you don't have a Bible, we want you to take it. It's yours to keep. I won't judge you like you guys just judged me with Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings. Luke 24, page 722. We're going to start at verse 13. I'm just going to read this whole story for you. Um, and, and here's an example. Luke itself is a narrative. Luke is, is a narrative explaining the life, the death, the ministry, and the resurrection of Jesus. And chapter 24 is actually the climax of the story. It's actually the last chapter in this book. And it's easy for us to read this real quick. Um, we know the ending, but you have to understand, in this scene, this is real time. So Jesus has just died Friday night, crucified, utterly shocked his followers. They're full of despair. Now, we know resurrection comes, but don't read that into the passage. You have to enter it into real time. For them, Jesus is dead. Luke 24, verse 13, here we go. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about everything that had happened. 
And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. And this is key. But they were kept from recognizing him. So Jesus is walking with them. They don't know it's Jesus. I don't know how. Who knows? Verse 17. He asked them, and this is just great comedy. What are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas, we think this is a married couple, asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these last couple days? Jesus, very humbly, what things? About Jesus of Nazareth, they reply. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. And the chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. This is a key line, but we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it's the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women, amazed at this, they went to the tomb early this morning but didn't find his body. And they came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and they found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. And here's the part that I want us to highlight this morning. Jesus says, how foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, that shorthand for like the whole Old Testament, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. See, both Jesus and these two travelers are assuming a story that they're living out of. They're assuming a certain way of thinking and hoping and believing. Cleopas says, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem us. Echoing back the Old Testament, the whole Old Testament is saying, hey, there's one coming who's going to redeem you, rescue you, heal you. And Cleopas says, we hoped that he was that one that was talked about, but, well, He just got crucified, so he can't be. And the way Jesus responds to them is so interesting. Because Jesus takes them back to Moses and the prophets, the Old Testament. And he answers their question by saying, hey, did you not read the story? Did you not read the first couple acts in this drama? This is exactly what was supposed to happen to this Jesus. In other words, the plot was going this way the whole time. And this is the climax. Jesus is the main character in the story of the Bible. He's the hero. He's the the hero of this grand story. He's the climax. Without Jesus, we live in despair. If Jesus hadn't come, Moses and the prophets, the story's still going and there's no resolution. There's still conflict. If you take Jesus out of the Bible, 
It's a horribly depressing story. It doesn't end properly. And this is why they were full of despair. They were heartbroken. Jesus fulfills or completes the Old Testament. Um, as a side note, uh, the word fulfill is actually used quite a bit in the New Testament. And that's not by accident. If something's fulfilled, there's a previous background that's already there that it's coming to fulfill. Here, real quick, turn to Matthew 5. We take a detour. Matthew 5, uh, a couple of narratives before Luke, page 659. <clears throat> Hang with me here. This is important stuff. Matthew 5, 17 through 18, just two verses. Jesus talking. He says this, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. Now, again, there's that phrase, law and the prophets. What does law and the prophets stand for? Wow. You guys, I had two toddlers with me this whole weekend, and I'm alive and going. Woo, let's go. Come on. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but here it is, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. You can only accomplish something, you can only fulfill something if there's something in the past that led up to it. Um, uh, Another phrase that Jesus uses quite a bit in Matthew, Mark, and Luke is he says, the time has come. Uh, in Greek, the word there is kairos. It means like it, it's game time. Like this is the moment that we've been waiting for. And Jesus says, the time has come. It's that moment in the book. It's the climax. It's finally here. And it's about me. I don't have time to turn there, but I could even take you to Acts. Acts is the story of the very first Christians. And it's really interesting All of Peter's sermons in the first couple of chapters of Acts are actually these really long narratives going back to the Old Testament. They never start with Jesus. His sermons get to Jesus as the climax, but he always goes back to the Old Testament first. Now, with all of that in mind, let me offer you a definition and I'm borrowing this um, from John Mark Comer and the Bible Project in Portland. Here's a helpful definition for the next nine weeks of what the Bible is. The Bible is a library of writings, both divine and human, that together tell a unified story leading to Jesus. The Bible is a library of writings meaning there's different genres in there, right? There's narrative, there's poetry. It's a library of writings, different authors, both divine and human. God has written it in and through humans that together tell a unified story leading to Jesus. That is what we will be unpacking for the next two months. So the question stands, why in the world does that matter? Who cares? Well, let me, let me suggest this. The way you read the Bible will affect the way that you live. 
If you understand the Bible as a story, you will end up seeing yourself as a character in it. Um, I remember my freshman year of college. I went to Cal State Fullerton. I actually got my marketing degree. So be careful if you're in marketing or business. God may call you into ministry. God's weird like that. And I'm at Cal State Fullerton. Um, I was living on campus there. And freshman year, so I take very standard course, Biology 101. And I came home that weekend. I don't know if it was my birthday or whatever. Who knows? Actually, I probably came home to do laundry. <coughs> I also did laundry this weekend by myself, too. It just keeps on going, folks. Um, so I go home, and I remember going into the dining room, and I kind of like, I don't think I throw, but I slam down this thick Biology 101 textbook. And I proceeded that night to just pepper my parents with questions and anger and frustration um, because for the first time in my life, I was dealing with doubt and skepticism over science and faith. And I had enough. I'm a type A personality. I want to figure this thing out. And my faith is getting rattled. I throw this book down. It's like 800 pages, right? The table shakes when I put it down. And I'm just mad because I have all of these questions. See, growing up in my own faith journey, and, and this isn't anybody's fault, it's just I never wrestled with these questions before. And for the first time then as an 18-year-old, I was doing it. And I was worked up. And I was mad. As I look back at that, and of course maturity in hindsight is everything, I actually see what was going on there. The issue was how I was interpreting the Bible. I was actually reading the Bible wrong. Now, what do I mean by that? The Bible's far more interested in asking the big why questions, the big who questions, and not so much the how questions. Science will ask how, the Bible will ask why, and why is way more important than how. But I was reading Genesis 1 and 2, the creation narratives, I was reading them like a biology 101 textbook. And that is not how you read a story. If I wrote an autobiography of my life, which I'll spare all of you guys, I'm not going to, I don't plan on. If, you, if I wrote an autobiography and then you read it and you read it like a biology 101 textbook, you would completely miss it. That's not the genre. You guys get what I'm saying? So I was reading Genesis 1 and 2, like my biology 101 textbook, and I was expecting it to talk about all these things, which they didn't know about Newton, gravitational pull, and cosmology and all that stuff 3,000 years ago. The Bible's far more interested in asking why or who than it is how, meaning this. The Bible cares about why did God create the world? Who is God? Why are human beings made in His image? But I was so caught up in asking how. Now, as a disclaimer, I have to say this. I passionately and intellectually believe that science and faith are not at odds. I actually think they fit together quite nicely. 
And if that's you and you're interested in those things, email me. My email's on the website. Let's go get coffee. I'll ask you what your story is, and then we'll go into all that. I, tons of books I can give you. Um, the Bible, let me be very clear on this. The Bible is without air to which it speaks. Science and faith are not at odds. The problem is, is the way we read it, though. Three examples. This brings me to three examples that I think here are ways that we commonly as modern Americans tend to read the Bible, and I think they're wrong. There may be some bits of truth in them, but by and large, it's the wrong approach. Here are the three. The first one is what I just mentioned. We often treat the Bible as a scientific textbook. It's not. That's not why the Bible was written. If the Bible was written to be a scientific textbook, then God would have given us a ton of physics and cosmology and all that kind of stuff in there. He didn't. Do you know the most common genre of the Bible? Narrative. Story. 43% of the Bible is story. Do you know what the second most common genre in the Bible is? Poetry. About 70% of the Bible is story and poetry. So the Bible is not a scientific textbook. Doesn't mean it's not true. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying it's how you read it. Second thing, and then this is kind of the opposite for those of us who want to read the Bible as a scientific textbook. The opposite end is this. Some of us think the Bible is an ancient fairy tale myth. Now, the Bible is ancient. It's over 3,000 years old. And there are parts of the Bible that at times may seem like a fairy tale, meaning this, the Bible is full of audacious, daring hope, and it is a love story, but it's not a myth. See, the Bible claims to be a grand story that takes place in history, in space, and time, and matter. Jesus was a first century Jewish rabbi who was physically resurrected from the dead. He told Thomas, put your hands when my nail marks. Make no mistake about it. And I think, I think it was C.S. Lewis who came up with this. Um, he calls modern Westerners like social, uh, social snobs. And here's what he means. We think, as people in 2022 in America, that we know way more than the ancients. Oh, we have technology. We, we know that miracles don't happen today. Come on, that's just a bunch of ancient fairy tale myth. That is actually very arrogant. And you are being a snob when you think like that. Do you think the ancient people were not aware of the discussion of do miracles exist or not? Of course they were. We have writings about that. So it's not as though people in the first century in the Middle East were just completely blind and like, oh yeah, miracles, I'll just believe in that. No, no, no. A lot of them didn't. The problem with that is that we are living out of a story as modern Western Americans and how we read the Bible and that story and that narrative says that this world is closed off, that God doesn't intervene and that miracles don't exist, and then we transpose that on the Bible. I'll come back to that one. Third one, I think this one right here is most Christians today, we read the Bible as self-help improvement encyclopedia. Here's what I mean by that. Um, I think a lot of us treat the Bible, we open it up and it's like there's a table of contents and um, you just kind of pick and choose, oh, I'm feeling down today, so I just need kind of a little pick-me-up truth 
let me get that. Oh, let me just go to Philippians 4.13. Yes, Jesus, thank you. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And you read that verse as you're driving down the 91 freeway in bumper-to-bumper traffic because you're late and you want to watch The Bachelor, or you read that verse in the middle of the night because you're trying to sleep and the AC doesn't work and it's 107 degrees outside. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That is what I mean by reading the Bible like a self-help improvement encyclopedia. Sorry to disappoint you, but that is not what the Bible is for. Did you know that the Apostle Paul, when he wrote that verse, Philippians 4.13, let's look at his circumstances, because he wasn't on the 91 freeway, he wasn't in a very comfortable house that's just a little hot with no AC, no, he's actually in a jail cell when he's writing that verse, and he's just talking about being able to preach the gospel while he's in chains. The Bible is not a self-help improvement encyclopedia. Does it help you, and will it improve you? Absolutely. But there's something deeper going on. Tim Keller um, writes, this is a great quote in Counterfeit Gods. He writes, the reason for our confusion is that we usually read the Bible as a series of disconnected stories, each with a moral for how we should live our lives. It is not. Rather, it comprises a single story telling us how the human race got into its present condition and how God, through Jesus Christ, has come and will come to put things right. That's the story. So, point, main point so far, the Bible is a story. It's the true story. It is the greatest story ever told. We have to read it as a story, not as a science book, not as ancient fairy tale myth from Disneyland or something, and not as a self-help encyclopedia. So how should we read it? I'm going to borrow um, an analogy from a well-known theologian, N.T. Wright. And this has been so helpful for me. I found this about 10 years ago, and it has radically shaped the way that I read and am shaped and formed by the Scriptures. It's this. What if we understand the Bible as a six-stage Shakespearean play? As a six-stage Shakespearean play. Um, In a play, in a drama, there are acts, act one, act two, act three, and and all the acts connect to one another. So if if you take out one act, let's say you just take out act two, act one and act three aren't going to make sense. The the, the story is going to feel disjointed. Everything is connected. You can't understand the story. You can't understand act six unless you understand acts one through five. They all build on one another and they're connected. So, let me propose to you a helpful model of a six-stage act of how to understand the Bible. This really, really helped me. And we'll put this up on the screen one by one. By the way, this is basically then what we're talking about for the next six weeks. This is just a prologue. You know what I'm we're going to go into the, the chapters now. So, Six-stage act. Here's act one in the Bible. It's creation. To every story, there's a beginning. Now, if you understand literary plotline stuff, that's called the exposition. That's just a fancy word for beginning. Every story has a beginning. The Bible has a beginning. It's called creation. Now, act two. It's the fall. 
In every story, any story made up by Hollywood, there's always what's called a conflict. Something goes wrong. That is act two in the Bible. Then, um, literary stuff tells us that there's always what's called rising action. That for us is act three, and it's Israel. It's actually the bulk of the Old Testament. I, for the longest time, never understood the point of Israel in the Bible. We're going to break that one down for you. Creation, fall, Israel, The fourth act is the climax of the story, and it is, of course, Jesus. What happens after the climax? The church. In literary terms, that's called falling action. And the last act in this Bible, the way it ends, is the resolution, and I'm calling that new creation. Now, notice the Bible goes from creation to new creation. That is not by mistake. Now, here's the cool thing. Here's what I want you to get. Right now, right now, you and I are a part of this story. Right now, we are in Act 5. We are in Act 5, which means this. The story isn't over yet. Act 6 hasn't happened yet. We're still waiting for new creation. But it also means that Acts 1 through 4 have happened. Now, in every good play, every good drama, there's a main character, right? And I think hopefully by now you get that Jesus is the main character in this story. If you don't know that yet, unashamedly, Jesus is the main character. And that's offensive in our culture in and of itself. The Bible's not about you. It's actually a really good thing. The Bible's about me. We're in trouble. (laughs) All right? Jesus is the hero. But there are supporting actors and actresses. You and I are characters in the story, and check this out, we are given a script. And the script that we're given is the script for Act 5. The whole point of the Bible is to tell us what came before, where we're going, and what our role as a character is now. And what happens, to use this analogy even more, is that if you don't know your script, if you don't know your words, if you don't know your role in the play, well, you're lost. And the story won't make sense. The Bible is not just for information. This is the biggest lie that I believe for 25 years. The Bible is not just for information. The Bible is for transformation. Put otherwise, the Bible is your script so that you know what to do in the play. The minute that we get away from that or we don't understand that, we will walk away and not understand the greater story that we are a part of. The Bible is here to tell you what to do, how to act, how to do your job. It's not just for information. I know lots of Christians that know tons about the Bible and their lives look nothing like the story that they're a part of. So for the next six weeks, we then are dissecting this model. So next week, act one, creation. That's it. Following week, act two, fall. Then Israel, then Jesus, then the church, then new creation. And then we'll surprise you with the last two weeks. But for this morning... For this introduction, here's what I want you to ask yourself. And here's where it's practical. 
What story do you live by? What story do you live by? Um, Pete Hughes, he's a UK pastor. Um, He's also one of the recommended books on that handout. He says this, the story that you live in is the story that you live out. The story that you live in is the story that you will live out. Stories shape you. They align you with reality. See, our culture today has lots of stories for us to believe in. Let me give you a couple examples. And a lot of us, we're not even aware of this. We just implicitly live out of another story. Here's a story that our culture will, t- will try to get you to believe. I call it a story of consumerism. And it's a story that says getting more things and buying more things will make you happy. You want your life to be better? You want to find resolution? Well, just buy more stuff. You just need to get more things, and the more you get, you'll be happier. That is a story of consumerism, and it's a flat-out lie, and that story is bankrupt. Because every time I get something new, I'm happy for two weeks, and then two weeks in, I want something else. And we all know that. And especially this time of the year, man, I'm already looking at that iPhone 14. You know what I mean? Like, Oh, man, my my emails are going to get so much better, better for my eyes. It has like that new emergency safety feature. Rachel, see, we'll be more safe if I have the new iPhone. No, two months in, I'm already waiting for 15. The story of consumerism, I would argue that many Americans buy and live in that story. Here's another story that we live into, a story of self-fulfillment. Life is all about you. Do what you want. Follow your desires. Here's the phrase, you be you. Find your inner strength. Pursue pleasure. Every time I hear the phrase, like, you be you, I always laugh inside, and I actually cringe a little bit, because if someone told me that, Mark, you be you, that is not good news. If I'm me, I'm going to mess something up. I'm going to make someone mad. I'm going to disappoint myself. You be you. I'm broken, man. I don't want to be me. I want to be Jesus Christ. Our culture tells us a story. You got everything you need. Just follow your wishes. Fulfill your dreams. And that's great. There is truth in that. I'm not just being like a buzzkill this morning. But I'm just saying there's an element in humanity. By the way, this is act to the fall. That we are broken. We can't make this world by ourselves. It's a bankrupt story. Here's another story for you. How about the story of technology? It goes like this. Oh, we don't need God anymore. We have technology. We have education. We have medicine. For some people, it's we have politics. Man, this world's just getting better and better. We can just progress more. One day we'll cure cancer. We'll do all this stuff. We don't need God anymore. Us humans, we're in control. And I hope and pray that we do cure cancer one day. So there's no one who's as much for technology and education and medicine than me. A lot of you guys know my story. I've been on an antidepressant. No problem sharing that. And I thank God for psychiatrists. I thank God for medicine. But what I will say is don't believe the story that all you need is those things and that you don't need God. 
that story is bankrupt. We're the most sophisticated, educated society ever before. And I think we'd all say America's a little, little, little wacky right now, right? So how's that story going? Here's the last story that I think some of us will buy into. It's actually the story of materialism. This one is actually, it is what it is. There is no God. You are a biological evolutionary accident. You're just molecules and neural pathways hitting each other. That's it. Nothing more, nothing less. Life is what you make of it. There is no hope for tomorrow. And because there is no hope for tomorrow, because there is no ultimate story of love and meaning, make the most of today. Carbe diem. Seize today. Party on. Tomorrow's not guaranteed. Now, that is true in the sense that tomorrow isn't guaranteed. But that's a bankrupt story, too, because human beings hardwired into us is hope. We have to live with hope. We have to live with the possibility of something greater in the future. We have to find meaning and purpose. It's a bankrupt story as well. So then the question becomes, do you live in the story of the Bible? The story you live in is the story that you live out. In this story, Jesus is the main character. He's the climax of the story. And the climax is is him dying on the cross for your sins and resurrecting physically from the grave, defeating the greatest enemy of all time, death. Why? Because he knows that you're more broken than you know, but you're more loved than you can imagine. What story do you live in? Secondly, do you act like a character in the Bible? Um, I already put this, but one of our themes in this nine-week series will be this. The Bible is not just for information, but for transformation. I think a lot of us grew up with a church culture that was all about what you know about the Bible, but our lives look nothing different from those who don't read it. Um, You know, I was thinking... Do you ever read like a really good book or watch a compelling movie and just do it for information? I mean, maybe some of us, right? But by and large, if you go to the movie theaters and you watch a compelling movie that grips you, you're moved by that story. Like you you tend to walk out the theater and you kind of sometimes have a new perspective on life. That movie, it, it shapes and it forms you. You see the world definitely. You, you grasp for hope. Um, people don't just read Romeo and Juliet for information unless you're in high school English. And then in that case, you're not reading it. You're using Spark Notes or Pink Monkey. If you know, you know. You don't read Romeo and Juliet just for information, but more than likely it's been passed down through history because it is a moving, tragic, romantic story that gets at human emotions. So do you read the Bible just for information or for transformation? Put otherwise, do you act like a character in Act 5? Who cares about how much you know about the Bible? The question is, do you act like a character in it? Let me end with this. I'm in a 2007 essay 
Austrian philosopher Ivan Illich, he made this statement about the power of telling the right story. This is good. Neither revolution nor reformation can ultimately change a society. Rather, you must tell a new powerful tale. One so persuasive that it sweeps away the old myths and becomes a preferred story. One so inclusive that it gathers the bits of our past and our present into a coherent whole. One that even shines some light into the future so that we can take the next step and check this out, brothers and sisters. If you want to change a society, then you have to tell an alternative story. If you want to change a society, you have to tell an alternative story. Brothers and sisters, as followers of Jesus, we have the greatest story ever told. And we have a world and a culture and a region for us. It's the Chino Valley. That is just like that married couple in Luke 24, walking down the road, full of disillusionment and despair and discouragement, what life is like. And they're asking people questions. Do you know what's going on? And we have a story that can shed light and make sense of their disillusioned reality that actually offers hope and good news. If you want to change the society, tell a better story. We have the greatest story ever told. And we live in a culture that is absolutely hungry more than ever before in my lifetime. And I know I'm not that old. But I've seen enough life to know that people are hungry for a better story. People are waiting to meet with the resurrected Jesus, and they may not even know that he's right next to them. Because only Jesus can redeem your past, provide meaning to your present, and hope for your future. Do you know this story, and are you a character in it? Those are the two questions that stand before us for the next nine weeks. I'm going to invite the music team up. Um, The prayer team can come forward. We're going to head into a time of ministry. Um, We don't want to be a church that just, again, focuses on information. We want to be a community that is transformed, that is moved and changed because of the story that we believe in. We believe that this changes lives. And so I don't know where you are this morning. Maybe you're here and you are utterly hopeless and broken. Maybe you're here And you actually think this whole Bible thing is an ancient fairy tale myth. And I just want to say, we're so glad that you're here. Cool. Just read the story with us. Wherever you are, if you need prayer this morning for whatever it is, no questions asked. These are trusted, safe people up here that would love to pray for you. We're going to sing two songs. And what these songs do, they kind of rewire in our brain the story of Jesus, his good news. And so we get to sing it. It's poetry. The middle of the Bible is full of psalms that are just poetry, music. So I just invite you to sing with us.
Let me pray. Lord, we started off with Psalm 121 that you know our coming and our going. You know where every single person's at in this room, whether they believe in you or not. And the better news is that you love them no matter what. Can we just get reawakened to your purpose for us, your love for us, your hope for us, your nearness to us? Reawaken us to your presence. Come, Holy Spirit. Minister to us. Holy Spirit.